Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm Jordan Valerie, and today I'm joined by Genevieve Jones-Wright, Deputy Public Defender for the County of San Diego and candidate for San Diego County District Attorney. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So for starters, could you tell us about your background and how it brought you to a district attorney candidacy? Absolutely. So I made up my mind in the fourth grade after learning about Justice Thurgood Marshall that I too would become an attorney and use the law to change our nation and to make our world better. So I decided that I would go to Howard Law and I did. And while I was at Howard, I was a student attorney with my own cases through our criminal law clinic. My professor was also the director of the public defender service there in Washington, D.C. And so I had my own personal caseload representing the criminally indigent. A little time before that in college and from high school, I thought that I would actually become a prosecutor. I wanted to do justice and seek justice on behalf of victims, but also on the other side of it, I grew up in low income housing and saw that we didn't necessarily have the most positive interactions with law enforcement where I lived. And so I wanted to also change that. So there was this weird dichotomy. But after learning more about prosecutorial agencies and how justice was parsed out, I decided that that wasn't something I could be a part of because there wasn't a comprehensive look. And so when I was a student attorney, I really fell in love with representing people in dire straits in our criminal courts. At that time, I also had interviewed with some prosecutorial agencies across the nation just to make sure that I didn't want to be a prosecutor. And it solidified that I did not want to be a prosecutor because they were not looking for the same thing that I was looking for, which was helping people. And so I put that on a shelf, never thought about it again. Came to a point about a year ago where I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired, you know, commiserating with my colleagues and having a long day in court. And we're talking about how a kid got hammered with 50 plus years. And it was things like that. And I sat back and said, why are you not gonna just take this by the reins? There is something you can absolutely do about this instead of just venting. So. Here I am running for district attorney. This is the office with the most power to make the most change in our criminal justice system. And so that's why I'm running. So the big question on everyone's mind, I think, is what the hell is a district attorney? (laughs) So the district attorney is responsible for making the decisions about who is charged in a case what they are charged with, when they're charged, how they're charged, and even why they are charged. So on the flip side, a district attorney also decides who isn't charged in cases. And so there's great power there, great decision-making power in the district attorney's office. And so the district attorney has a lot of influence and impact on individual lives all over the counties that they represent. What changes do you hope to implement as DA? Well, in California in particular, we've gotten to a place where federal judges, in response to lawsuits that the state lost, by the way, where federal judges have said, empty your prisons, you're overcrowded. And that is a sign that how we've been operating in the criminal justice system is simply not working. So the first thing I would like to do is to stop giving jail as the solution. Stop using jail as the end-all be-all for crises that we're seeing. So right now we are criminalizing homelessness and 
for us to use the jails to house folks that our city and county officials have neglected and ignored and failed to address housing needs. We're in San Diego, California, and most people are holding down three jobs to just pay the rent. They're living with multiple family members just to make sure they have a roof over their head. To then use our jails to say, you should be criminalized and punished for simply existing in our counties without a roof when it really goes back to failed leadership. So that's the first thing I wanna change. I also wanna change this attitude about how we treat community members that are struggling with mental illness and that are struggling with drug addiction. We need to actually get to the root of problems. That's how we reduce recidivism. We have to help people. We've gone from a place where we treat people humanely and we've now just over-criminalized our populations. And so we're seeing our jails fill up with folks who are struggling with mental illness. And we know how we've been treating mental illness in our nation. It is an atrocity. And right now in San Diego County, our jails are the biggest mental health facilities. That is disgusting to me. If we take these resources that we're putting in our jails and we give them to the community organizations that are doing the work, then it would be easier for social workers and public defenders who are trying to get folks into treatment and in beds to not have to wait for forever for a waiting list to open up while they sit in jail. So that's the first thing. The other thing that I believe I can do day one is to dismantle the school to prison pipeline. There's just simply cases that should never come into our court systems. Things that kids are doing at school that the principal and other administrators can take care of on school grounds. And yet we think that it is okay to usher our children. And let me be specific about this. More children of color and more children from poorer neighborhoods are affected by the school to prison pipeline, especially in San Diego. If we actually say that is something that needs to stay on school grounds and stop thinking that it is okay to saddle our children up with convictions, we will be better off. But right now what we see is that we have to fill beds in juvenile detention facilities. And all this does is it institutionalizes our children. And so they go from juvenile detention facilities to our jails and then to our prisons. And we have got to stop the school to prison pipeline. And I know that as DA, I will do everything in my power day one to do that. So that's just some of the ideas that I have. I wanna talk a little more about the prison system Though it's far from mainstream, the prison abolition movement has definitely been gaining steam in recent years. Major organizations like the National Lawyers Guild have come out in favor. Research analysis by a judicial clerk to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals judge Frank Easterbrook found that prisons are expensive and ineffective, thus calling for alternative options that are more humane and don't burden taxpayers. Given the clear failures of the American prison system, do you support prison abolition? And if not, what do you hope to do to reform prisons to make them effective? So I'll take the first chunk of that. I absolutely support prison abolition on a certain level. So I believe, as most people do, that there is a place for prisons, right? There's a place and a purpose for separating some people from the community. When you're talking about serial killers and child molesters, rapists, murderers, folks do need some time to be set out, right? So there's a need for prisons. But I am also of the thought that especially in states like California, we have way too many prisons. We're investing more in our prison industrial complex industry 
than our schools. And so I believe we need to close down a prison a year in California. And I'm hearing that our governor, our current governor thinks the same way. And I am all about that because we don't need so many prisons. The more prisons we have, the more guards we need, the more staff we have to have. That's how we start to feed the prison industrial complex. If we close down prisons, we don't have a need to keep the prisons full. And so prison abolition in that regard, yes, I agree with. The next part of that, I am a staunch opponent of the private prison industry. I think that in a civilized society, there is absolutely no place for people to profit off the backs of jailed and incarcerated persons and their family members. So I believe that we have got to get private industries out of our prison system. The state should never allocate that responsibility of housing inmates to companies whose bottom line are profits and dollars. And so we're seeing inhumane treatment of inmates. We are seeing now that they're phasing out in-person visits to charge loved ones $12.99 for 20 minutes of a phone call, which the phone calls aren't of good quality. And so they're taking away human touch. They're taking away visitation. And we're starting to treat our incarcerated family members and community members as pariah. And it's just to get costs down. And there's so much I can talk about the private prison industry. They're not safe. They're not safe for anyone. They're not safe for the staff. They're not safe for the inmates. And they're just inhumane. And so we've got to close down private prisons. We've got to close down private immigration detention facilities. We've got to get businesses out of this business. As you know, of course, Prisoners in the United States are exploited for what's essentially slave labor. In California, they're used as firefighters serving in this essential role, saving lives for next to nothing while they're living in inhumane conditions, stripped of their rights, their suffrage, their opportunities if they ever escape incarceration. What do you hope to do as DA to improve conditions for incarcerated Americans? Well, the first thing is we need leadership that is going to implement propositions that the people have voted in. And so Proposition 57 is one of those propositions where it incentivizes inmates to better themselves. It incentivizes inmates to take parenting classes and anger management classes and get their high school diploma, learn job skills. That makes the prison environment safer. That makes the prison environment better. Right now, we have failed leadership in the form of the current administration of the district attorney's office. They have opposed every single piece of criminal justice reform legislation, including Prop 57. So what does that mean? They would rather people sit in prison and not have anything better to do but lift weights, fight, and be hate mongers instead of being productive citizens and learning to cope with the things that brought them into prison. I'm a fan of therapy. I'm a fan of addressing the trauma which brought people there. One thing that I know as a public defender is that many of my clients, I would say 98% of my clients were the victims of yesterday. And so they have been failed. We haven't addressed childhood traumas. Most of my clients have a delinquency record. They have a dependency record, meaning their parents failed them. They got into some trouble, perhaps on the other end, because of systematic failures. And now they 
are our current inmates. So what are we doing to actually address things? And at the same time, make that environment as much as it can be a little safer. Because let's be real here, jail and prison, they're not good places to be. I don't care who you are. There's a lot of fighting there. There's a lot of racism there. There is a lot of abuse that these people are suffering at the hands of the system itself and guards. And so we have to talk about these things. We can't sweep these things under the rug and we can't say, well, you're an inmate and you're there for punishment. No, these are still human beings. And so we should be doing everything in our power to actually help them. And I don't care where you are. You do not put your life on the line as a slave for a dollar a day, which is what's happening right now with our inmate volunteer firefighters. And so they're being paid pennies. And you say that it is like slave labor. It is absolutely slave labor. If you read the 13th Amendment, this is legalized slavery. And so they're using our inmates. They are paying them pennies, literally, and they're exposing them to danger. And on the other side of it, they're saying, and I'm not going to help you better yourself. That is disgusting. Another inmate population that faces really terrible prison conditions is incarcerated trans people who end up in jail or prison, often in the facilities matching the gender assigned to them at birth rather than their actual gender, which often pushes them to suicide. How would you help ensure that transgender Americans always have their gender respected and validated even in the criminal justice system? We actually had a case of that, unfortunately, in San Diego County, where there was a transgender inmate who was not respected and placed into a population that this person did not identify with. And it is heartbreaking because that person took their life. And it was only then that our sheriff said, oh, okay, I think maybe now I need to take a look at this. We've got to respect people. We've got to respect how folks identify. You cannot put someone in danger simply because, again, you regard them as an inmate who needs to be punished. So I am a big fan of respect and humanity. That has to be shown. If we're going to have prisons, it has to be shown there. And so when you talk about transgender people, you talk about them being housed. They need to be housed where they identify. They need to be housed where they are safe. This is a safety issue. And we have not progressed as a society enough that people respect people who identify in a different way. And that's the same for inside of the prison with other inmates and the staff in prisons and also on the outside. But there is no reason at all why a person's identity should not be respected. It should never go by the gender that was assigned to them at birth at all. There's another big abolition movement that's gaining steam, which is the movement for police abolition. This movement asserts that since the police originated through slavery and have always served to oppress Black Americans in particular, it is better to abolish the police and shift to community-based alternatives. What are your thoughts on this? So again, I do see the need for law enforcement. I see the need for community policing. 
But that means that police officers have to be willing to be a part of the community. We cannot continue to have officers who are simply on a beat in a certain neighborhood. We need police officers who live in the neighborhood, who identify with the folks they are there to protect and to serve. And we don't have that anymore. So we have to talk about diversity. We have to talk about training. There needs to be cultural sensitivity training. I believe that law enforcement officers are safer when we foster healthy relationships with the community, that it's easier for them to do their jobs and that they will do their jobs better when they're upheld to a standard. When officers know they're going to be held at the same standard that every other community member is held at, then they will take more pride in their work and they will actually not believe that they're above the law because reality is that no one is above the law. And so it bothers me when people think, oh, you're, you're anti-law enforcement. No, I support our law enforcement. And in supporting our law enforcement, that means I have to say, let's remove the bad apples because the bad apples actually make it harder for the good officers to do their job. If we get rid of the bad apples, then the good officers will have that community trust and the community will understand that there is someone there who stands with them and who will help to remove bad officers. Let's be very clear here. Officers who victimize community members do nothing to make neighborhoods safer. They actually make communities less safe. When you don't have community trust, people will never cooperate with law enforcement. People will never feel safe enough to report crime. People will never believe that you are officer friendly and that their child should trust you. Because right now, the climate that we are in is that you can call for help on behalf of a loved one and that loved one will be shot and killed, given a death sentence by the responding officer. We've got to change that. And anyone who believes that I am not supportive of law enforcement because I have that perspective, they don't understand what it means to live in a community where that is a fear that you cannot ask for help because someone's gonna die. And we have to change that. So I am unapologetic about that stance. I do not believe that we don't need police officers. I believe we only need good police officers. You mentioned justice for undocumented people who are obviously abused and kind of locked out of the justice system. For example, domestic abuse survivors and victims are often afraid to call in for help because it risks deportation. I was wondering, what are your thoughts on sanctuary cities, which are obviously just kind of a band-aid on a larger problem? And going deeper, how do you hope to help undocumented people in the long term be able to fit in and participate in our justice system? I agree with you that this label of sanctuary cities is simply just a band-aid. I think that we have to get to a place locally where we have leaders who will stand up and who will say, I am not going to enforce racist, discriminatory, and biased immigration policies. As the district attorney, I would implement policy that is already the law, and I shouldn't have to do that. But I can tell you right now that when I negotiate cases that have immigration consequences, deputy public defenders will look at me and say, well, I don't care. And you're supposed to care. And so I want to change that. When I'm district attorney, there will be a policy that you will consider a devastating effect, such as someone losing asylum or someone being deported as a result of the case or the offense that you offer them 
to plead to. We've got to get to a place where our local agencies are not working as a federal agency, because it goes back to what I just said earlier. When you have victims who are afraid to come forward, people learn who they can victimize. Offenders learn that they can operate in the shadows and that they can target certain communities and community members because they're never going to go to the police station. They're never going to come to court. They're never going to show up as a witness. We've had a situation in San Diego County where a woman was being physically abused and battered by her husband. He's a citizen. She was undocumented. And when she went to the courthouse of all places, she was taken in. She was deported. Was there a case levied against this husband who was the abuser? No, because he was afforded more protection than she was. That is lopsided justice because the answer was then, well, we don't have a case because we don't have a victim. Well, you deported the victim. So we have to take a step back and we have to say, we keep talking about doing justice for victims. We keep talking about safer communities. Meanwhile, her husband is still free roaming the streets and able to be physically violent to whomever because we decided that her quote unquote illegal status was more than her status for being a victim. And so we've got to get to a place again where we're looking at the human story. And I just believe that humanity has been left out of the criminal justice system so much where prosecutors don't care that it's a difference between one day, 365 days and 364 days that will require someone to be separated from their family for forever. We've got to get away from that. Expanding on justice for survivors, something I think that many people have overlooked about the Me Too movement is how it is necessitated by the failure of our criminal justice system to bring justice to sexual assault survivors, if justice is even an option. The system is rigged to protect sexual abusers, which is why a man who bragged about being a serial sexual assaulter is in the White House while victims and survivors of sexual abuse in Washington are forced out of the world of politics for simply speaking up. Of course, a just criminal justice system wouldn't serve as a magic solution for everything, but it's hard to imagine the Me Too movement existing as it is without abuse, uh, without the abuse experienced by survivors in our current system. How would you as DA advocate for sexual abuse survivors? I want to start here with the Me Too movement. I think this is a very, very powerful movement. And I am happy that the Me Too movement has gotten the momentum that it has. We're now seeing Trump's accusers who came out before he was elected as president say, you know what? This is round two. The climate has changed. It didn't matter that we came out before because you still elected this jerk as president. But now we're going to put ourselves back on the line because the climate has changed and we've seen all of these other people fall as a result of their accusers coming out. And so it's given them strength and bravery to put themselves back on the line and to take on such a powerful man who was now the president of the United States. And so I'm thankful for the Me Too movement. But we would not have the need for a Me Too movement if we addressed this stuff in the criminal justice system a long time before. So as district attorney, I would never put the onus on the victim to be perfect. We keep talking about cases that the DA is willing to prosecute and cases that they say, oh, well, you know, that victim, she's from the right neighborhood. She looks a certain way. We can move forward with that case. 
there is no perfect victim. And until the justice system knows that and recognizes that, we are gonna be in a place where this stuff will continue to happen. And so as district attorney, my promise is that every single victim will be dignified and that their voice will be heard. When I announced July 5th of this year, there were over 2,500 untested rape kits. 2,500, over 2,500 untested rape kits in our county. San Diego County has billions in reserves, and yet we couldn't find it a priority to test every single rape kit. We couldn't bring dignity to these victims who endured a four to six hour collection process only to have those kits sitting on the shelves of our crime labs across the county. My opponent was head of the Sex Crimes and Human Trafficking Unit for years. And now, as a woman, just now saying, oh, the DOJ just made these new guidelines in August and now I'm gonna follow the law. Why do we need a mandate or a law change from the federal government to do what's right for victims? It is appalling. We should never have a backlog of untested rape kits. You test every single rape kit. We know the benefit of that. We know that it prevents crimes and it solves crimes. And yet we say, well, that victim's not perfect, or this was a family member, or we'll classify that as domestic violence. District attorneys need to get it together because they are actually helping fuel victims staying in the shadows, not having the courage to speak up because they're not being heard. These victims get interrogated. They're not interviewed. They're interrogated by law enforcement. This is why there's so much rape and sexual assault on our college campuses, because when you report, they point the finger at you and we've got to change this culture. And so that is something huge to me that I'm very passionate about. And as district attorney, you would see a big difference in San Diego County and how we do deal with rape victims and survivors. So you're calling for a lot of big changes that I think would bring justice to a lot of marginalized bodies are much more practical than what's happening right now. But you're also already being attacked for these proposals. You're being characterized as a radical, someone who wants to help criminals. How do you respond to these attacks? I can tell you that they are attacking me because they are scared. These folks are threatened by my candidacy. No one expected anyone to go up against this political machine. My opponent was handpicked. Her predecessor stepped down and quit on San Diego County just to put her in, just so that she could have her succession plan come to fruition. This is not democracy. And so they're now threatened that someone like me would have the audacity to say, I'm sorry, but there's actually an elected position that the people get to vote on and put someone in place. So they're running scared. And so we're seeing these attacks. But when they say she's gonna be an activist DA, I say, you're already an activist DA. The district attorney's office has a person who is paid solely to be their legal representative and to lobby in Sacramento. So every time there's been criminal justice reform legislation, that person has gone up to Sacramento and opposed it. So when we talk about Prop 47, when we talk about Prop 57, when we talk about Prop 64, when we talk about the money bill reform, SB 10 bill, when we talk about the bills that were there last year, which would decriminalize women 
who are sex trafficking victims from being prosecuted and decriminalize children, minors, our kids who are being sex trafficked, keeping them from being prosecuted. Our district attorney's office has someone paid staff saying no. We want to continue to criminalize these kids for being victims of sex trafficking. And we want to continue to criminalize these women who are sex trafficking victims. Again, I want to say my opponent was head of the sex crimes and human trafficking unit. She didn't stand by these bills. So when I hear you're going to be an activist DA, I say, which DA is not because DAs are always on the forefront of opposing necessary legislation when it is criminal reform minded. So I'm no different than what they're doing. It's just that I'm on the right side of things. So what advice would you give to millennials hoping to run for office to reform the criminal justice system? Do it. Don't let anyone tell you not to. Everyone keeps telling me, well, not everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope not. Not everyone, because there's so much support. It's just humbling. But a lot of people, especially in the beginning, would say, well, you're young and wait your turn. There is no better time than the present time to do what's right. How do we wait for justice? How do we say, wait your turn? Again, this is an elected position. There's no turns here. You go, you run, and you win. So for all my millennials out there, you are never too young to make change. I tell this to my college students, my high school students. I go to elementary schools. I'm not going to wait for you to make change until you're of age. You can make it now. And so for all my millennials out there, you're the best, you're the brightest, you've seen the status quo not working, you've seen all the mistakes, get in there, do something, be the change that you want to see. You have the solutions. So get out there. Don't be afraid. There's always going to be something that someone can tell you to dissuade you. It can be the color of your eyes. It can be the community where you grew up. It can be your socioeconomic status or that you didn't go to college. Who cares? Get in there. You have something inside of you. You can make change and I'm waiting for it to happen. I don't have a future without you all because our future is looking really bleak with the leadership that we have. We don't have to go very far and look at Washington, D.C. to see that. And so we need new blood. We need fresh ideas. We have to be creative in our solutions. And so millennials, you hold the key. Get in there. And lastly, how can folks get involved in your campaign? Please go to my website, www.joneswright4da, that's F-O-R, and Jones Wright is all one word on the website, J-O-N-E-S-W-R-I-G-H-T-F-O-R-D-A as in district attorney. There you can sign up to volunteer in any capacity. You can donate. There's a big red donate button. This is a people power campaign. When I say that I'm up against a political machine, I am up against a political machine. So every dollar helps. So if you can donate anything, I am very appreciative. We have a very big reporting deadline coming up on December 31st. We want strong numbers to show that people support this campaign and that I am a strong contender. So donate. Other than that, just follow me on social media. Talk about me everywhere because people have to get the message. And we want everyone to vote on June 5th. June 5th will be the day of reckoning. That is the day I want to stand before everyone and say, I am proud to be your DA elect representing every person in the county of San Diego. So volunteer. 
donate, 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 share my social media. And I will say this, go to my Facebook page. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, but go to my Facebook page. You're going to see some exciting videos. I'm all about speaking truth to power. I'm not afraid of these folks. I already have a target on my back. Let's make it bigger. Let's win this. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I think your candidacy is really important. I'm glad to see someone advocating for these policies. I don't think I've seen anyone willing to advocate for these policies that aren't necessarily yet in the mainstream, but are more practical, more humane, and incredibly important for our society and for our criminal justice system. So thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. Again, I'm Jordan Valerie, Editor-in-Chief of Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter and Medium at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Subscribe to our newsletter and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co. And stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.